This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey! I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have another one of our speakers from Ruby Dev Summit, uh, Justin Weiss. Hi. Justin, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. I'm Justin Weiss. I develop software for aha.io, where we help product managers create products customers love and be happy doing it. I also uh-huh. write articles at, yeah, yep. I also write articles at justinweiss.com, and I wrote a book, Practicing Rails, to help developers learn Rails without getting overwhelmed. Nice. So we brought you on to talk about what you're going to be talking about at Ruby Dev Summit. I like to give people a little bit of a taste. This is probably going to come out actually the week that we're doing the summit. So if you're interested in Justin's talk, uh, hopefully you didn't miss it. (laughs) Do you want to give us kind of a thumbnail sketch of what you're going to be talking about? Sure. One of the things that if you are working on a web app that has kind of grown over time or you're working on a like native client for a, a remote API, you're probably dealing with the situation where you have these web requests going to and from each of your different applications. Um, our apps start to become a little bit more like of the web instead of running on the web. This makes it a lot harder to understand what's going on because you now have all of these communications between services that you don't necessarily have a whole lot of visibility into. And so how do you actually break into these connections between your different apps or your native clients and your remote APIs to understand what's going on so that you can solve the problems that come up? Are you really sure this is a problem people face? <laughs> pretty sure. Pretty sure. Okay. okay. <laughs> Not uh, with my apps, but some of you uh, other people, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. I hear of people well, having this problem. Yeah. Yeah. My you friend <laughs> talks about this problem. <laughs> oh, microservices everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the microservices conversation is interesting, too, because... I mean, I remember way back in the day, like service oriented architecture was a big thing. And so people were breaking up their apps into pieces that were way too small. And then, you know, things kind of went back to the monorail and then it was kind of a monorail with the the services around the sides. And it, it seems like we're, we've kind of hit, uh, I don't know if it's a happy place. I think it depends on the app, but you know, people have a much better idea about when they want to split things off to a service and when they don't. But then you introduce a communication layer in the middle of that. And it's like, okay, now what am I dealing with, right? Now I have to understand a queuing layer or HTTP or REST or GraphQL or something or something else. And, you know, how does it all talk to each other and how do you keep track of it? Exactly. Like you, uh, it it can uh, depend on the size of your team or how your team is structured, like how deep into the microservices world you want to go. 
But you tend to see these like waves going back and forth between, okay, well, microservices is too hard to debug or too hard to manage, too hard to deploy. So let's move back to the simplicity of a monorail. Okay, mm-hmm. now our team is growing. We're finding some success. And now we have, you know, three different teams that never talk to each other all working on the same code base. Right. And now they're stomping on each other's toes and it just becomes mm-hmm. a disaster. Yeah. The coupling here is killing us. Exactly. Do you find... So obviously you had a lot of pain in these areas to lead you to want to give a talk about this. Did you find that with AHA or any of the other products that you were building where um, you did start stepping on toes or maybe the things started becoming less visible? Uh, well, my, my last job um, was at a company called Avo. Uh, I was there for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so I got you really to kind of, like You like working with uh, companies with three letters. I'm not uh, sure well, see a pattern here. So Avo was four, but I do like uh, companies that start with the letter A, apparently. So that's, <laughs> that's the uh, common thing there. Uh, but no, like I, uh, I got to see that app grow from a single uh, tiny Rails app all the way to the like a uh, much more distributed architecture. And I got to see firsthand a lot of the both pain points that that um, gives you, as well as the problems that it ends up solving from like a team communication or a coupling or a um, just like how do we get these changes through quickly. Cool. So how do you start? Let, let, let's break it down. And where do you start when you when you start uh, trying to analyze your application and have open visibility? Mm-hmm. So I, there's a, one of the like fundamental lessons of debugging that uh, has been hard one is this idea that you uh, you need to keep narrowing down where the uh, problem is in order to actually solve it. Like if your surface area is the entire app, then you're going to be like looking through every single line of code to figure out where the problem is. You can say, hey, I know that this function is doing the right thing. I don't need to look at anything above it. If I see this function is doing the right thing from or passing the right thing back, I probably don't need to look at anything below it. And so you can kind of continually narrow in on where that problem is. In order to do that, though, you need some sort of visibility to understand, like, is this doing the right thing at this point or not? So there's a few different ways that I've seen this work with um, with web apps. One is like, can I exercise the API of this web app manually with these types of parameters and get the right thing back? That's kind of the okay. well, I don't need to look at that part, probably, because it's uh, because it's doing the right thing from that point. There's the other of if my web app is called with these parameters, uh, is it being called with the right parameters? And so there is that side of like, can I stub out my web app? Can I see what parameters it's being called with? And can I make sure that uh, those are what I'm expecting? And then there's also the, can I just inject myself into the middle of this communication between um, these two services that are either running on my machine versus a remote machine? Or like, can I just explore what is how this uh, communication is happening between these two real apps so I can see exactly what's going on? So there's a few different places you can kind of inject yourself, but all of those you need in order to narrow down where the problem actually is so you can have a hope of solving it. No, you just deploy and look at the logs, right? Oh, yeah. Logging solves everything. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, There's some I, pretty I, powerful logging tools out there now. There are, I, but... I, I, a bit. I'm being a little facetious there, but like I, I use puts for debugging all the time because yeah. it's so oh, yeah. easy. It's so useful. Uh, unfortunately, it always turns out that the one thing you needed to see is the one thing that you forgot to log. So, mm-hmm. Well, the other thing is, is that the log has all of the other information that it winds up logging in there, too. And, you know, the, the Rails logs, we complain about them v- being verbose and they are in development. They're less verbose in production, but it's still a lot of information, especially with a lot of traffic to go through. So, yeah, if you can instrument it before you push it out with a controlled case, a lot of times you can narrow it down much more quickly. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Let's talk about logging real quick. Do you guys use any tooling or any uh, gems or libraries that allow you to more um, uh, more effectively uh, scope out your logs? I know that there's a, what is it called? Yeah, so there's LogRage, which can uh, shorten it to uh, be a little bit more, or shorten your Rails logs to be a little bit more easy to use inside a log aggregation service. Like it makes it act a little bit more like the rest of the different services that are logging on your system. But this like logging and monitoring ecosystem right now is like mm. huge and it's mm-hmm. just growing. And yeah. so it can be really tough for a team to understand, okay, like, Am I at the point where I need to graduate to something that can handle more logs but costs a lot lot more money? Or is this right. something that we should try to build ourselves? Should we maintain our own like uh, Logstash, Elasticsearch, Kibana stack to do this? Or, or uh, should we just pay to have this problem solved for us? So let's talk about tooling. Um, how do you, so you mentioned one of the ways that you can uh, determine uh, where issues reside is by trying to make the API request manually. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's talk about how, how, what's the process that you go through to do that. So um, I typically use the program curl, um, the command line program that's installed just about everywhere. Uh, like you right. can go onto pretty much any system and you'll find uh, you'll find it there. Um, the problem with that is that you know you can print out the man page of it and it's going to like fill up an entire book. Like there are so many different mm-hmm. things that you can do with it. Um, you kind of have to either memorize the 10% that you use most often or just constantly look it up whenever you need to do something interesting. There's some graphical tools that uh, I also kind of like or that um, teammates have used. I know a lot of people that swear by Postman, um, which was a Chrome plugin. I think now it's just a wrapped native-ish app. Is it? Uh, it's an Electron app now, isn't it? It might be. Yeah. Yeah. It was originally um, like a Chrome extension and just ran right. it in Chrome. Um, but I know that they were talking about putting on a native app maybe a couple months ago or something like that. Yeah, I have I have the app and I, I actually use Postman all the time. Yeah. And uh, they're they're an amazing product and the ability to create and share collections and use environment variables and all that stuff with them is 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 pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other one that I've used for the Mac uh, that's a, a paid app but really really nice is Paw. Paw. Yep, P-A-W. Um, it works a lot like Postman. I kind of like the native interface a little bit better. And it had some other features that uh, I, I liked when I was reading the marketing page, but I haven't really used all that much since then. But it's been good. Wow. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's pretty awesome. Huh. What's the sales pitch for Paw over over something like Postman? Because Postman, it's free, but it's also a subscription-based if you want to go their pro version. Yeah. So with Paw, they I liked the way that you could set up uh, parameters in it. You could exercise it a little bit more like uh, a. It could make your requests feel like they were a native app. Um, you could save them for later pretty easily. Um, that kind of thing. I think you can do most of that with Postman. Uh, I'm not sure that I would tell people, hey, just like buy Paw because it's uh, better right. in these ways. To me, at the time that I was evaluating some of this stuff, uh, it seemed better. And I'm also one to just generally pay for apps that I like. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It looks like they have a feature which is like probably enough to make me want to buy them, which is uh, export to Swagger. That is... Oh, yeah. Po- Postman, they, they kind of fall short there on the export and import. It's not, it's not honed as well as it should be, I don't think. So yeah, that's, that's actually a huge feature because if you've ever created Swagger documents, it's a nightmare. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> so nice. It's like the most massive. I want to build a, I want to build documentation for my API. Okay. Let me do it while I'm banging my head inside the door frame. You know, <laughs> that's kind of how it feels. Yeah. 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 I, another one that I've used, I think it's called advanced rest client. It's also a Chrome plugin, but yeah, I mean, there are all kinds that, you know, you just tell it where to post to give it parameters and off it goes. Yeah. I mean, I've even used, there's a rest client that you can uh, plug in for Emacs that I've used before. Um, you know, right, right. You're, uh, you're speaking HTTP. my language yeah. here. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, you guys, I'm now, I'm now no longer part of the group. <laughs> See those eyes glazing over that I mentioned. It's starting to happen now. Yeah. No, you write your, uh, your HTTP request. You like press some key combination and then it fetches it and paste it right back in your editor. It's great. Well, one thing that I'm curious about with some of this though, is, um, for one, some of these tools allow you to update like the agent string and stuff. Because sometimes you care about that, you know, is it coming from mobile device or something else? Um, and so that's helpful, too, because then it's okay, you know, I can kind of simulate it's coming from the iPhone app as opposed to from the web. But yeah, it's just nice to be able to do that and, and make those kinds of connections. Um, one other tool that I used a while back is Charles, which is a proxy. Yeah, yeah. And so um, as you as you connect, it just, you know, it basically just monitors the connections through your... Um, computer and then you know as you make the connections it'll show it so if you're running an electron app or a native app or anything else and you can actually have it proxy for your iphone and stuff and so again Mm -hmm. you know for the different devices that was also really nice just to be able to see what's going in and what's coming out on on a live call and manage things that way Um, i'm yeah i'm curious um have you found a good way to automate some of these so like if you're looking for something specific or you know, you want to just push a whole bunch of stuff through it and see what you get back. Do you, are they scriptable or can you just, are you just kind of, these are one-off tools and you write your tests to do the other stuff? Um, for the most part, I, I lean on tests once I figure out what the problem is or I, I kind of know what it is that I'm doing. Uh, one of the things that I, uh, so uh, I like that you mentioned Charles because I use uh, another one that's pretty similar to that called MITM proxy. Mm-hmm. Um, stands for man in the middle proxy and it sits in between um, you you point your proxy server at that on your um, OS or inside the terminal and like you said you can see all the network traffic that goes back and forth between your different apps or between your app and the web and I found this incredibly useful for both seeing how an app is communicating with the outside world uh, as well as debugging problems where I don't want to like parse the rails log I just want to see okay like what is my rails app uh, getting from the browser or how, how is it being called? What is it uh, sending? What is it returning? It makes it a little bit easier to see an overview of what's going on and then dig into it um, later on. Gotcha. So how, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, UI on this. Is it basically a terminal dump? Yep. Uh, well, let's say, I think it's a curses app um, where it lets you, you can navigate through it. It runs the terminal, but you can use like arrow keys to go up and down through the different requests. Um, there's some cool things about it, like you can replay requests. Uh, which can be super handy. Uh, You can edit requests and then replay them, which is also pretty handy. Uh, And you can even like hold on to requests, like make make a request not actually hit your server, but return a uh, a static response back to it. Oh, very Um, cool. Which can also be fun. 
So I work in my day job. I work for a, a company called Scipio, and we do um, a tremendous amount of text messaging um, out and in. And part of the setup that we go through uh, for all new developers and part of the setup that we have is we use a service called um, Ngrok. And uh, with Ngrok, what we're able to do is it, it, it basically provides the same type of thing for inbound inbound requests where we can still have that replayability and everything, but it gives us a full full view of what is happening. But it also provides a, a public... URL for inbound webhooks. So if we have a, if I have a webhook that I need to set up, I can just uh, run my ngrok command. Uh, I pay for a, a static domain with them, and then all of my it, it comes in on port eighty or port four four three based on whatever URL I'm using. But extremely powerful tool. Have you used that before? Yeah, I have. It's it's really nice, and I like that. You know, you're you're actually kind of walking through the different um, steps that I use when I'm trying to debug some of the. Um, some of these problems where there's that, okay, I'm getting a callback from a text message or I'm getting a callback from Stripe or something like that. What do, like, how is my app actually responding to that? Am I getting what I expect and that kind of thing? Um, and Grok is probably my favorite tool for that. But sometimes I want to go, like, I, I want to start a little bit earlier. And there's some tools that can help out with that. Uh, Request bin is one of them where you pass it into one of these services as your callback URL. And then you can see all of the requests that are made to that URL. There was another one called webmock.io that it doesn't look like exists anymore, but I'm, I'm sure that there's something else uh, like that out now where it can you can almost construct an entire REST API that returns static data, which can be really handy for if I want to build a mobile app without actually having the, um, the API part done yet. Uh, I can start experimenting with some static data, get it working, and then... Once the API team ends up getting to the point where they can, like, we can connect it all together, uh, I'm already partway done. Yeah, the one that, ah, the one that I've used is uh, RunScope. Okay. And so it, it's another one of these services you set up and it, you know, so you can set up your Stripe uh, endpoints or webhooks. You can set up, you can set it up as your API server if you really want. And then what it does is it logs the connection coming in and then uh, passes it back to your service and then logs the re response so that you can watch things. Yeah, I don't that's think really I've used cool. that one, but that's really cool. I've never heard of that. So one of the things that I'm looking at is, you know, you, you have all of these different tools, you know, so you can, you can fake the connection, you can fake the call, you can, you know, make calls to production, or you can watch what's going across the wire, going out and coming back. How, how does this actually help? I mean... You know, assuming and, and I'm, I'm asking this a little tongue in cheek because I've used these tools and I've used them to solve specific problems. But I'm curious, you know, when something breaks, like what kinds of information are you typically looking for here? So I'm I'm looking for uh, uh, kind of like uh, we were talking about at the beginning. What I'm really looking for is a way to figure out what parts of the app are actually working OK, mm -hmm. because that makes it easier to narrow down on the parts that aren't. And so sometimes I've been working on the app for long enough that I have some kind of intuition over where the problems might be, in which case I can say, okay, well, I'm just going to slice this out so I don't have to think of it anymore because I know that this part that I sliced out is working okay. Um, a lot of the time, if I'm like, it, it kind of depends on what the specific problem is. If I'm uh, like my API server is returning something weird, then I will usually try to exercise it with something like curl or uh, postman set a debugger in my Rails app and then uh, in a 
like the controller action or where it seems like that problem might be coming from and then uh, explore from that point. Um, other times, if it's between two apps, maybe there's an app that I don't actually own. Um, I might try to just throw requests at it with different pieces of data and see if I can either reproduce the problem or if I can get some more insight about how that app is actually working based off of like, okay, well, if I gave it this, it gives me this back. If I give it this, it's giving me this back. So it must be doing something like this. Right. Yeah, I guess the other thing, though, is that some of the more obvious things are when you get like a, a 403 forbidden or you get a response that says that you're not authorized. You know, those are easy to pick up. But do you ever run into issues where you're trying to figure out why it's sending you the wrong data or why it's sending you too much or too little data or things like that? Like, how do you identify those and, and how do those help you go and debug your actual code? Yeah, so in in a case where like I'm I'm playing with an API and I'm getting a lot of data that I don't expect, either like too much or too little. Sometimes I will try uh, messing with the request a little bit in something like uh, curl or paw or postman and uh, and see, okay, like if I'm if I pass this extra parameter, what am I getting back? If I'm changing this name, what am I getting back? And uh, it's starting to learn a little bit about how the app works in that way. Mm-hmm. Once I do that, I can start to look in, okay, where in my app am I actually, or where in this other app am I communicating with the server in that way? And how is what I'm seeing different than what this app is doing? And trying to unify the two of those or, uh, you know, okay, well, if I change the request in my client app to uh, to use what I've explored using something like curl, uh, does it actually work now? Right. So uh, again, it's trying to figure out like, okay, where is this point where I can slide my debugger or my logger into and say, okay, like if I can get this part below it working, then um, it must be something that's happening above it that I need to change or vice mm-hmm. versa. How much do error logs play in a uh, factor in this? Uh, error logs are usually my first indication that something went wrong. So uh, think of something like um, Honey Badger or uh, Sentry or, or something like that is usually my first sign that something is going wrong if it actually made it to production. Um, if you're talking about logs within like the Rails console or something, I, those can be uh, those can be helpful too for understanding that something went wrong. Depending on how much you're logging, it could tell you exactly what's going wrong. In which case, great, like you can fix it right away. Uh, in other cases, it might just be kind of a like a sign that something is happening in this area of the code base, and so this is where I should start. Um, but probably about 80% of the time, that's the right thing. Like that's the right place to start looking. Mm-hmm. Other times, it's happening someplace completely different, and you're just seeing a symptom of the problem. In which case, you have to go deeper. Interesting. So, so it sounds to me like there's there's kind of two approaches to to this. There's a the um, preventative approach. Like I brush my teeth every day. I floss my teeth. I won't get cavities. And then there is the um, responsive approach, which is like, oh, crap, I got a cavity. I got to go to the dentist and they're going to drill it out. So what type of preventative approaches would you recommend pre-error to basically position yourself in a way to to be able to respond accurately and quickly or maybe not have the issues? So what, what's what's your setup that you do pre, pre-bug? Um, that's a hard question to answer because I think it depends on what it is that you're actually trying to do. There are different okay. strategies that you can use for um, for different situations. For web requests, one of the things that has helped out a lot is if I can have one like one library that I'm using to send out 
curl requests or API requests or that kind of thing. What library could, do you use? Uh, well, as, if I can have one. Um, so for just general HTTP requests, I still usually reach for Faraday just because it's mm. general. Um, I can swap out the underlying library as I need to if I want to do like parallel HTTP requests or that kind of thing. Uh, for API at uh, API requests um, at Avo, we used a lot of um, we used a homegrown library that was kind of a REST client or JSON API client, um, but was based off of a draft, and we uh, didn't get a chance to update it. But it worked out well for us. Uh, but the nice thing about having one library for that is that it's really easy to uh, inject logging into there to uh, to have it like uh, give you more insight into what it's actually doing. In which case, you might not actually need any extra tools to help you debug problems that are happening. The library, the logging might just tell you itself, which is pretty nice. Okay. Um, but from a more general, like, how do I prevent errors? One of my favorite things to do is to, uh, if I can set up the method so that it just does the right thing, even in the face of an error, um, using something like a null object pattern or um, or guard clauses inside the uh, the functions that I'm dealing with and saying, hey, like if I'm not getting something back, what is the right behavior that the user should see? Uh, like those types of things feel right from a preparation standpoint to me rather than, okay, I'm going to throw an exception, I'm going to report it and like people are just going to have to deal with it. Nice. Very nice. Do you follow the, uh, the, Sandy, the Sandy Mets principles then? Um, so, uh, not intentionally. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a, well, I like, I see the, the principles like that as coming from two directions. Like if you're writing code so that it follows the principles, then I found that sometimes that can end up leading to, uh, hard to maintain code because you're breaking things apart into small pieces. You're scattering them all over the place. And like, that's not great, but mm -hmm. that to me, isn't really the point of the rules. Like the rules aren't meant to say, okay, like this code must follow these rules in order to be good code. Um, what I, what I tend to see is that good code tends to follow those rules, but you don't necessarily start there. You get there by constantly improving the code. And when that happens, I, I tend to see code that's, uh, that's really flexible. That's, um, easy to understand. That's self-explanatory, like all of those good things. I just like, to me, it's really hard to start there. Uh, it's really hard to say, this is why I'm doing this to follow these rules rather than. I'm doing this to write good code and mm -hmm. this good code tends to follow those rules. So it can be a sign, but to me, it's not so much a direction. How did you get into programming? Why, why did you choose programming? Um, I've always kind of been interested in computers. Um, my, uh, my mom, uh, brought home an Apple II uh, when I was little. So I was one of the lucky nice. ones to, to kind of start, oh, yeah. uh, start young. Um, and they, they used to come out with these great manuals. Like they came with a basic programming manual with every single computer they sold, which was great, uh, at least at that time. And so I kind of learned both through like messing with games that, uh, that came on floppy disks and, um, and trying to add cheat codes and all of that kind of stuff. But I wasn't <laughs> sure I was going to make it a career until, uh, until much, much later. It's just more of a hobby for a while. Oh man. So do you still have that old Apple too? Uh, probably not. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I have a I have a, a relative who has an an old. I can't remember if it's an Apple II or the one right before it, but he has that in this box in his basement, and he pulls it out every now and then just to look at it and puts it back. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cool. Oh man, he gets major yeah. points with me. <laughs> yeah. 
Hey, I have a question about, uh, you know, we're talking about this API stuff. We've kind of talked in uh, about different strategies. Do you have like a really gnarly story about an API thing that you were trying to track down or some messy connection that it was just like, I don't know who the heck wrote this, me in the past, but it's <laughs> exactly. a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, probably the most recent really gnarly problem that I ran into is a few months ago. Um, we ran into a, a situation where we were like losing session data for people every once in a while. Um, it actually started showing up in tests most uh, oh, wow. or most frequently because like our uh, acceptance tests, which are just using Capybara, WebKit or Poltergeist. Uh, and the it showed up there because we're making all of these requests really, really quickly all at once to uh, to a couple different pages. And when I hooked it up to MITM proxy to see what kind of traffic was being sent to and from the server, I found out that it was because we had a race condition where some request was setting the session in between a, uh, a request that went out with the old session and then came back with the old session that ended up stomping on the one where we had stored the data into. So uh, we, we ended up like sending a request with no data ended up sending a request with no data, ended up getting back, back data, and then that original request came back much, much later, which stopped on the old data, uh, overwrote the session. And uh, I have no idea how I would have figured that out without MITM proxy. With MITM proxy, it was nice because I could see both the request time and the response timestamp. And I had a sheet of paper where I'm writing down every single request that's going to and from its start time, its end time, ended up like sketching out a timeline. And from that, it was pretty obvious that that's what the problem actually was. Um, and so for that, it was it was kind of funny because mo the requests that were causing the race condition shouldn't have been touching the session anyway. So it showed mm -hmm. us, hey, like there's actually a like a logical problem here where we're creating session data where we really shouldn't be. Um, and we're doing this because we have some context that is set on most pages, but not all. And um, Skipping that in the uh, the controller was the easiest way to solve that. Uh, that would be crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was, that's it was, one of those. That's one of those bugs that turn your hair a little bit whiter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I explained it in like 15 seconds, but it, it took about a full day to uh, to really get down and understand what was going on. Wow. Well, writing out the timelines too. I mean, you know, it's just not something that you really think about. It's it's okay. You know, I'm going to run through the debuggers and look through the logs and. You know, just just kind of work through this a bit at a time. And yeah, you know, how, how do you get to the point where you're looking at it and going, I wonder if it's a timing issue or I wonder if it's a race condition? Because those are notoriously hard to track down. Yeah, yeah. The highest bug. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think the, the only thing that really saved me with that one was I was working on a talk about sessions at the time. And so sessions were on my mind at the, anyway. Mm -hmm. And so it said, okay, like let's figure out what's going on here because at the very least it will, you know, teach me a little bit more about this thing that I'm trying to give a talk on. Gotcha. So that, that curiosity has always really helped me with debugging because it helps me go down these paths that I wouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. think are the cause of the problem because I figure, okay, well, even if it's not, I spent some time, I learned something new. This is going to help me later on. Yep. Mm. Now related to sessions, one other thing that comes to mind is authentication and authorization. And so when you're testing some of these APIs, I mean, how do you simulate that? I mean, sometimes you can just put like a, a key on it. You know, maybe you're attaching a, a JWT, a, a JSON web token or something. But sometimes it's, it's like, the, you know, you have like third party authentication and stuff like that. I mean, is there a good way to simulate those kinds of things? So uh, one of the interesting things about a like 
a protocol like OAuth, where you're logging into a uh, to server, um, and then you can make authenticated requests to it from there. Mm-hmm. Is that there's all of this back and forth. You know, right. you're making a request to another server. You're logging in over there. You probably don't have visibility into that login page or a whole mm-hmm. lot of visibility mm-hmm. to that login page. It calls back a callback somewhere in the background, and and so that stuff can be really really difficult to debug without some of these tools. Um, with some of the tools, if you're uh, if you're testing out an OAuth path or you're trying to uh, to figure out how it works, you can use a tool like ngrok or request bin as your callback URL, see the token that it's handing back. Uh, uh, if you understand how the protocol works, you can craft the requests yourself that an OAuth library would be sending to the server. And so you can create this whole handshake manually um, as long as you know there, there's no timeout or anything like that that's uh, right. you know a human can't match. Um, but the uh, you can exercise this entire path using the ability to both send uh, custom requests and receive responses somewhere where you can see what's getting back. Nice. So it's tricky, but it can be done. Knowing my luck, I'd, I'd wind up authenticating to Google, run my test, and wind up nuking my Gmail or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. At my work, I have to write a whole bunch of different authentic different OAuth integrations with different services that we integrate with so it ends up being where you do have to write your own OAuth implementation um, but there is a lot of power in that if you if you if you can get through the the struggle yeah yeah I, mm-hmm. when um, I was originally doing OAuth for uh, for Avo I spent probably a week or so with the spec uh, because you know the spec is great but just like a lot of them they don't name things what they actually are uh, yeah. which makes it a little bit hard to get through. <laughs> so I, I you know, spent some time crossing out, yeah. okay, well, this is what this means. This is what this means. Okay, yeah. now I get it. Now I get it. Oh, yeah, been there. Felt that pain. So do you ever use these tools to characterize somebody else's API? Um, what do you mean by characterize? So, for example, there's a third-party API. You don't actually control the code or the server or whatever. You know, do you pull in these tools and say, I'm just going to throw stuff at that and see what I get back just to kind of figure out how it works, especially if the documentation is not great, but you need to use it? Oh, yeah. Um, in the same way that, like, if I'm grabbing a library from somewhere, um, I will sometimes, you know, throw random or call random methods on it or uh, see what happens when I pass in different data than, um, you know, than I is documented. And uh, some, especially if I'm trying to do something that isn't obvious with a library, um, I'll do the same thing with web APIs sometimes where, OK, well, given this pattern and this thing that I want to do, does this actually work? And uh, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But that can help get through some of these APIs with not so great documentation. Luckily, I, I feel like the standard of documentation for APIs has gone way up over the past like two, three years. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a lot easier to to know, OK, like this, uh, this is what I need to do and this is how I do it. I assume that excludes GraphQL APIs, right? <laughs> I have a little bit of experience with GraphQL APIs, but I haven't really used any. Uh, I haven't used any GraphQL APIs that I haven't or that we haven't written internally. So gotcha. uh, I don't. I don't know what the state of that is right now. Oh, they're self-documenting, right? <laughs> Probably, right? Yeah, you can make requests and get the schema back unless they turn that specific query off, and so. Yeah. That that's nice, just from the standpoint of okay, what's the shape of the data that I can ask for? And since your queries are essentially this is the shape of the data I want, it just works out nicely that way. But I could also see, I mean, even then you can put in your um, reducers. I think that's what they call them. 
anyway, or resolvers in your resolvers. That's what they are. Um, so you can put into your GraphQL resolvers things like authorization. And so you can make requests for fields that you actually can't get back because you're not authorized and things like that. And so I can still see a level of this sort of hacking around and banging on things and seeing what breaks just to characterize those, just to see why you're not getting back the data that you want or you think you want. So, I mean, even then there's something to, to be learned. Let's see. So with GraphQL, um, my experience was uh, actually pretty positive, especially because we were using it with a mobile app, uh, which I think is kind of like the optimal place that you use a GraphQL library. Uh, one of the reasons is kind of like what I was talking about earlier about trying to sketch out an um, API for a mobile app uh, using something like a, a mock um, or like a web mock type framework. Uh, you can build it out without really having the API clearly defined yet to try to like explore on the mobile side what it is that you're actually trying to do or like what's right for the user. With GraphQL, I see a lot of that same thing because you can be really flexible with your API uh, in what it responds, how it responds to that, what it's including with a single API request, um, allowing the client to drive a lot more of that, which can help with some of that synchronization that's really hard uh, between two teams that are working on uh, the same app or the same uh, real user problem. Is there any other uh, topics or points that, that you wanted to go over um, that we haven't discussed? If there's anything uh, even relating to like debugging in general, like uh, I, I think debugging is one of the uh, best hard skills a developer can practice. Um, it's helped me from everything from understanding more about what problems I'm seeing and actually solve bugs all the way to I'm in a brand new code base. I have no idea what's going on. How do I understand where this stuff fits? Like typically what I'll right. do is I'll search for some, some string in the UI, slap a breakpoint in there and then kind of see how, how that goes. Right. Uh, so like if I, if there was one skill that I feel like has really helped me grow as a programmer quickly, it has been the ability to debug just about anything. And that, that goes for um, mobile development as well. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. How hard, how hard is it? Do, do you, so I noticed on your repo that you have a, um, if I remember right, you had a, an objective C project mm -hmm. uh, or uh, so how hard is it to debug in objective C versus Ruby? Um, it's uh, so Xcode uh, has a really nice visual debugger. Um, okay. Ruby, unless you're using something like Ruby mine. And I know some people that use Ruby mine just because it's debugger is so good. Um, but if you're using like the console debugger, if you're not familiar with something like that, it can be trickier. Even if you are familiar with that, some of the stuff is a little bit harder to do that way. Um, there are some things that you can do with, uh, with Xcode, like, uh, you can have it instead of breaking at a breakpoint, you can have it play a noise every time it hits a breakpoint, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> which can be pretty nice. You can have it log a message every time it hits a breakpoint, which can be even nicer because then you don't necessarily have to instrument your, um, code base with all these log messages if you're just trying to solve one problem. So uh, I think it's one of the nice things about having an IDE is that the debugger support tends to be a lot better than if you're using something like Emacs or Vim. But I yeah. like Emacs for a lot of other things. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know that um, um, even Visual Studio Code has a debugger and I guess now Adam now has a debugger. But they just came out with a Ruby IDE add-on for it. Yeah, I started to see that. Um, I haven't played with it at all yet, but I mean, it would be nice. It's really cool seeing all of these different different editors working towards providing some uh, better visibility to the developers. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a developer. Um, uh, I'm a developer slut. So I'm sorry, not a developer, an editor slut. So I, uh, I have different editors for, for pretty much any project that I'm working on. It depends on what part of the project I'm working on is how I choose my editor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've mostly been Emacs for a long time, although, uh, I switched, uh, I've switched to it through a couple others at, at the time. Oh, I mean, it's it's like it, you, Emacs is such a commitment, but once you're in, once you're really in, it's like Scientology, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I, uh, I made the uh, the really uh, you know the really great decision to learn Emacs and Dvorak at the same time. Uh, so I had like a month oh, or two of just no productivity. Uh, <laughs> it was worth it in the long run. Uh, I don't know if I type any faster with Dvorak, but it's certainly a lot more comfortable for me than QWERTY was. But yeah, like taking those two things on at the same time, my brain was just fried. Oh man, that would be hard. Yep. All right. Well, Justin, if people want to follow you on Twitter or see what you're working on, on GitHub, or you mentioned you have a blog, where Mm -hmm. where do people get that info? Yeah. I uh, tweet at Justin Weiss, uh, just my full name, no extra stuff. I typically like post interesting articles, uh, especially like Ruby articles that I, uh, that I see cross my path. I'm at GitHub, same thing, Justin Weiss, um, and I have a few projects that, uh, you know, that are uh, pretty nice. And I also write at justinweiss.com. That's same thing, just my name, no spaces, punctuation, any of that kind of stuff. And then you can also probably, well, you'll probably also hear more from me uh, at AHA soon. Um, We're a fully remote team. We're hiring. So get in touch with me if you want to talk. All right, cool. All right, good deal. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Eric, do you want to hook us up with some picks? Yeah, I've got five, but they're basically <laughs> one. Um, so <laughs> part of my uh, part of my uh, debugging tool chain that I've used and I've used in every single app I've written is is Pry. Right, a lot of people use Pry instead of uh, Bybug in the Rails apps. So every single Rails app, I have five gems that I add. One of them is Pry Rails. Pry Remote, Pry Stack Explorer, Pry Doc, and Pry Nav. You get those together and you have a very powerful Pry tool set for debugging your application. So those are my five-in-one picks. Oh, and one other one I'm actually going to mention is um, Code Sponsor. Of course, I talk a lot about Code Sponsor. It's my my uh, side company. And last month, Code Sponsor. Uh, distributed almost $2,400 to open source developers. So we're super, it's a big milestone. And we actually hit over a million impressions uh, last month. So uh, we are making an impact and we're so happy to be able to help uh, open source developers continue to sustain their their code through funding. So check it out at codesponsor.io. That's awesome. Yeah, very cool. All right, I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. By the way, um, one of your picks a couple of weeks ago, Eric, I have been eating cheesecake for the last few days. <laughs> hey, hey, so good. Ah, uh, oh, it's one. Yeah. So yeah, uh, can't say enough good things there. Yeah, uh, lately I've been working on uh, a few things related to just different projects. So uh, one of them is um, by the time this comes out, I should have it out. I'm working on an Angular bundle. So if you're interested in Angular, um, it's going to have a couple of courses in it. It's going to have the talks from Angular Dev Summit. 
and uh, a bunch of other great stuff in it. So if you're looking for help learning Angular or Ionic or uh, leveling up, um, you know, we're going to have kind of a, a pro level course and an intro level course and uh, stuff like that. So definitely check that out. And then we also had talks on things like augmented reality with Angular and, uh, you know, just cool stuff like that, along with a little bit more practical stuff like Angular Universal and things like that. So um, I'll put that out there. Um, there's a really cool cart um, uh, software out there that I've been trying to get in on the trial on because some of my friends are using it and they really love it. It's called ThriveCart. You can find it at thrivecart.com. They're in beta, but apparently it is super nice. And so I'm trying to get that lined up. And um, yeah, and then the other thing is, is that um, I think I'm going to wind up breaking into the um, coding courses game here pretty soon. And so if you are interested in creating a course and having us help you market it on devchat.tv and things like that, um, email me, chuck at devchat.tv. Uh, Justin, what are your picks? Yeah, uh, so most of the episode has been a lot of uh, tool picks. So I'm going to go a little bit of a different way uh, and do some non-coding ones. Um, my first is a uh, book series pick. Um, there's a sci-fi series that starts with the book The Three-Body Problem uh, and has two others after it. And it's some of the best sci-fi I've read in a long time. Um, like the last book alone explores more interesting ideas than most entire series that I've read. So I highly recommend that. Um, and my second is uh, more of a life pick. Uh, I used to be pretty into managing my to-do lists, like I practically lived in OmniFocus. Um, and this summer I decided to try something different. No to-do list, very cute, few commitments, uh, low scheduling. Like if something needed to be done, I'd either just do it right away and get it over with or make the decision not to do it at all. Um, that change has been great for me. It might not be for you, but I would recommend trying it. Like just scrap your to-do list, get in the habit of knocking things out right as they come up um, and raise your bar on whether you need to do something at all. Awesome. Wow. Love it. All right. Well, I don't think there's anything else. Uh, everybody should come and check out your talk at Ruby Dev Summit. Yeah, um, definitely. If you want the recordings, you can get an all access pass. That'll get you into the chat room and things like that, um, as well as all of the recordings. And uh, yeah, looking forward to talking to you in a couple of weeks. Yep. You too. Yeah. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.